Chapter 9. Is it too late? Susan Jeffers is the author of Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, and many other best-selling books. She didn't begin her writing career until she was well into her forties. How she did it is a remarkable story. As a child, Susan loved to read. The best time of the day for her was when she could curl up with a book in the quiet of her room. I was always curious, she said, and my father was a great one for explaining things. Sometimes he would go into so much detail my eyes would roll back. I remember hearing something on the radio once that I didn't understand. The word was circumcision. True to form, he didn't give me a short explanation. He was like a teacher. I think he missed his calling. He'd always wanted a boy, and I was treated to all the things he would have done with a son. I got to go to a lot of wrestling matches. Susan went off to college, where she met and soon married her first husband. She dropped out when she got pregnant with the first of her two children. After four years at home, she decided she had to go back to college. This decision created much anxiety. The years at home, she said, had shattered my confidence, and I wasn't sure I would succeed. She eventually found her feet at college, and even graduated summer cum laude. When she learned of this honour, she began phoning everyone she knew. Finally, she said, I dropped the phone and began crying, as I realised that the one person I was trying to reach was my father, who died a few years earlier. He would have been so proud. With the encouragement of one of her teachers, Susan enrolled in graduate school, and ultimately received her doctorate in psychology. Then, through an unexpected turn of events, she was asked to become the executive director of the floating hospital in New York City. She hesitated at first, as it was a very big job and she didn't know if she could handle it, but finally she agreed. By then, she was having trouble in her marriage and she filed for divorce. This was a difficult time for Susan. Even having my doctorate in psychology, she said, didn't help. While my job was rewarding beyond my wildest dreams, I was miserable. I soon got tired of feeling sorry for myself, and I knew I had to find a new way of being in the world. And that's when my spiritual journey began. During the ten years she ran the floating hospital, Susan became what she calls a workshop addict. In her free time, she studied Eastern philosophies and attended all manner of personal growth and New Age workshops. I discovered, she said, that it was fear that was creating my victim mentality and negative attitude. It was stopping me from taking responsibility for my experience of life. It was also fear that was keeping me from being a truly loving person. Little by little, I learned how to push through fear and move myself from the weakest to the strongest part of who I am. Ultimately, I felt a sense of power that I'd never felt before. Sitting at her desk one day, the thought came into her mind to go down to the New School for Social Research, a place she'd never been. Since she was learning to trust her intuition, she decided to check it out. I thought maybe they had a workshop I needed to take, she said. When I arrived, I looked at the directory and noticed the Department of Human Resources, which sounded relevant to my interests. I made my way to their offices. There was no one in the reception area. Then I heard a woman in the office to the right say, Can I help you? I walked in and blurted out, I'm here to teach a course about fear. Where that came from, I hadn't a clue. She looked at me in shock and said, Oh my goodness, I've been searching for someone to teach a course on fear, 
and this is the last day to put it in the catalogue, and I have to leave in fifteen minutes. Satisfied with my credentials, she said, Quickly, write a course title and a seventy-five-word course description. Without any forethought, I titled the course, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, and wrote the course description. She was pleased and placed my course information on her assistant's desk with a note to include it in the catalogue. She thanked me profusely and quickly exited. Alone, I stood thinking to myself, what just happened? I believe strongly in the law of attraction, said Susan, but to her this was mind-blowing. Susan was nervous as she faced the first session of the 12-week course. The two hours went well, but then she was confronted with a new fear. I thought, that's it, she said. That's all I know about this subject. So what am I going to teach next week? And the ten more sessions to follow. But every week I found I had more to say, and my confidence level grew. I realised I'd learned so much over the years about pushing through fear, and my students were drinking it up. Ultimately, they were amazed at how shifting their thinking really changed their lives. Teaching this course convinced me that the techniques that had transformed my life were the same techniques that could transform anyone regardless of age, sex or background. Susan eventually decided to write a book based on the course she'd taught. She faced many roadblocks, and after four agents and 15 rejections from various publishers, she reluctantly put the proposal in a drawer. One of the worst rejection letters she received said, Lady Di could be bicycling nude down the street giving this book away, and no one would read it. During this period, she decided to leave the floating hospital and focus on becoming a serious writer. I remember riding in a cab one evening, she said, and the driver asked me what I did. I heard myself say, I'm a writer. I suppose until that moment I thought of myself as a psychologist or an administrator, but there it was. I was a writer. After three years of writing articles for magazines, she was going through the drawer that held her much-rejected book proposal. I picked it up, she said, and had a profound sense that I held something in my hands that many people needed to read. So I set out with much determination to find a publisher who believed in my book the same way I did. This time I succeeded. What's more, I succeeded beyond my wildest dreams. Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway has sold millions of copies. It's available in a hundred countries, and it's been translated into more than 35 languages. Susan has written 17 more books that are also making their way around the world. Susan was indeed a writer. The Times of London even dubbed her the Queen of Self-Help. She's a sought-after public speaker and has been a guest on many radio and television shows internationally. About Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, she says, my website receives emails from all over the world, from people telling me how my book has helped their lives. Some have actually credited it with saving their lives. I'm so happy I never gave up. My father would really have been proud. Is it too late? We all know people who feel locked into their lives. They sincerely wish that they could do something more meaningful and fulfilling, but at age 39 or 52 or 64, they feel that the opportunity's passed. Perhaps you feel that it's too late, that it's unrealistic to pivot your life suddenly in a new direction. Perhaps you feel that you've missed the one opportunity you had to pursue your heart's desire, maybe due to one of the constraints we discussed earlier. Perhaps you didn't have the confidence to follow the passion earlier, and now you believe that the moment's gone. There's abundant evidence that opportunities to discover our element exist more frequently in our lives than many might believe. In the course of writing this book, 
We've come upon literally hundreds of examples of people following their passions later in their lives. For example, Harriet Durr, the best-selling author, only dabbled in writing while she raised her family. When she was 65, she returned to college to get a degree in history. But the writing courses she took along the way raised her prose skills to a new level, and she wound up enrolled in Stanford's creative writing program. She eventually published her first novel, the National Book Award-winning Stones for Ibarra, in 1983, at the age of 73. While less than half that age, at 36, Paul Potts still seems stuck in an obscure and unfulfilling life. He'd always known he had a good voice, and he'd pursued operatic training. However, a motorcycle accident cut short his dreams of the stage. Instead, he became a mobile telephone salesman in South Wales, and continued to struggle with a lifelong self-confidence problem. Then he heard about auditions for the talent competition television show Britain's Got Talent, created by Simon Cowell of American Idol fame. Potts got the opportunity to sing Puccini's Nessun Dorma on national television, and his beautiful voice brought down the house, leaving one of the judges in tears. Over the next few weeks, Potts became an international sensation. The YouTube video of his first performance has been downloaded more than 18 million times. He ultimately won the competition and got the opportunity to sing in front of the Queen. Carphone Warehouse's loss has been a gain for opera fans around the world, as Potts released his first album, One Chance, in late 2007. Singing had always been his element. My voice, he said, has always been my best friend. If I was having problems with bullies at school, I always had my voice to fall back on. I don't really know why people bullied me. I was always a little bit different, so I think that's the reason sometimes that I struggled with self-confidence. When I'm singing, I don't have that problem. I'm in the place where I should be. All my life I felt insignificant. After that first audition, I realised that I am somebody. I'm Paul Potts. Julia Child, the chef credited with revolutionising American home cooking and originating the television cooking show, worked first as an advertising copywriter and then in various roles for the US government. In her mid-thirties, she discovered French cuisine and began professional training. It wasn't until she was nearly 50 that she published Mastering the Art of French Cooking and her storied career took off. At 65, Maggie Kuhn was a church organiser who had no intention of leaving her job. Unfortunately, her employers made retirement mandatory at her age. Angry at the way her employer showed her the door, she decided to start a support group with friends in similar situations. Their attempts to address the common problems of retirees pushed them towards higher and higher levels of activism, culminating in the creation of the Grey Panthers, a national advocacy group. We've all heard that 50 is the new 30 and that 70 is the new 40. If this algorithm extends in both directions, it might explain the adolescent behaviour of some 30-somethings I know. But there are some important changes that we should take seriously. Life expectancy has increased in our lifetimes. It's more than doubled in the past hundred years, and it's growing at an accelerated rate. Quality of health for older people has improved. According to a MacArthur Foundation study, nearly 9 in 10 Americans ages 65 to 74 say they're living disability-free. 
Many older people in the developed world have much greater financial stability. In the 1950s, 35% of older Americans lived in poverty. Today, that figure is 10%. There's a great deal of talk these days about the second middle age. What we once considered middle age, roughly 35 to 50, presaged a rapid descent toward retirement and imminent death. Now, the end of this first middle age marks a series of benchmarks, a certain level of accomplishment in your work, kids going off to college, reduction in necessary capital purchases. What comes after this is a second stretch where healthy, accomplished people can set off to reach their next set of goals. It's certainly either chastening or inspirational, I'm not sure which, to hear boomer rock stars prove their predictions wrong about what they'd be doing when I'm 64, or still trying to get some satisfaction. If we do have an extra middle age these days, certainly we get additional opportunities to do more with our lives as part of the package. Thinking that we need to fulfil our grandest dreams, or at least be in the process of fulfilling them, by the time we're 30, is outmoded. I don't mean to say, of course, that we can all do anything at any time in our lives. If you're about to turn 100, it's unlikely that you're going to nail the leading role in Swan Lake, especially if you have no previous dance background. At 58, with a wobbly sense of balance, I'm getting used to the idea that I'll probably never take the speed skating gold at the Winter Olympics, particularly since I've never actually seen a pair of ice skates in real life. Some dreams truly are impossible dreams. However, many aren't. Knowing the difference is one of the first steps to finding your element, because if you can see the chances of making a dream come true, you can also likely see the necessary next steps you need to take toward achieving it. One of the most basic reasons for thinking that it's too late to be who you're truly capable of being is the belief that life is linear. As if we're on a busy one-way street, we think we have no alternative but to keep going forward. If we miss something the first time, we can't double back and take another look because it takes all of our effort just to keep up with traffic. What we've seen in many stories in this book, though, are clear indications that human lives are not linear. Gordon Park's explorations and mastery of multiple disciplines were not linear. Chuck Close certainly has not lived a linear life. Disease caused him to reinvent himself. Sir Ridley Scott had a decidedly non-linear approach toward entering the film world. He told me that when he first left art school, I had absolutely no thoughts about making films. Films, he said, was something I would go to on a Saturday. It was impossible to think of how you would make that big a leap into film from the life I was leading. I then decided that fine art wasn't for me. I needed something more specific. I needed a target, a brief. So I moved around and tried other forms of art practice, and finally I found my feet with Mr Ron Store in printing. I loved the printing process. I loved having to grind stones for each colour of the lithograph. I used to work late every day, go to the pub for two pints of beer and get the last bus home. I did that for four years, five nights a week. I adored it. A short while after this, he started moonlighting at the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC. I was always trying to break the boundaries of what I was doing, he said, maximising the budgets. They sent me on a year's travel scholarship, and when I went back, I went straight in as a designer. After two years at the BBC... I was put into the director's course. From there, though, he made another leap, this time into advertising, because, as he said, it was fantastically fun. Advertising, he said, has always been a dirty word in relation to fine art and painting, 
and, you know, that side of things, I unashamedly grabbed it with both hands. Directing commercials led to directing television. Only after that did Ridley Scott become immersed in the film world that would define his life's work. If he'd believed at any point along this journey that he had to follow a straight path in his career, he never would have found his true calling. Human lives are organic and cyclical. Different capacities express themselves in stronger ways at different times in our lives. Because of this, we get multiple opportunities for new growth and development, and multiple opportunities to revitalise latent capacities. Harriet Durr started to explore her writing skill before life took her in another direction. That skill was waiting for her decades later when she turned back to it. Maggie Kuhn discovered her inner advocate when the opportunity arose, though she was probably entirely unaware that she had this talent until that moment. While physical age is absolute as a way of measuring the number of years that have passed since you were born, it's purely relative when it comes to health and quality of life. Certainly, we're all getting older by the clock. But I know plenty of people who are the same age chronologically and generations apart emotionally and creatively. My mother died at the age of 86, very suddenly and very quickly from a stroke. Right up to the end of her life, she looked 10 or 15 years younger than her birth date suggested. She had an insatiable curiosity about other people and the world around her. She danced, read, partied and travelled. She entertained everyone she met with her wit and she inspired them with her sense of style, her energy and her sheer pleasure in being alive, in spite of multiple hardships, struggles and crises in her own life. I'm one of her seven children, and she was one of seven as well. So when we gathered in one place with our extended family, we were a substantial crowd. My mother took care of us during times when there were very few modern conveniences and little help apart from what she could drag reluctantly from us when we weren't actually creating work for her. When I was nine, we all faced a catastrophe. My father, who was the pillar of the family and had been so distraught at my getting polio, had an industrial accident. He broke his neck and for the rest of his life he was a quadriplegic. He was himself an extraordinary man who remained firmly at the centre of our family life. He was sharply funny, deeply intelligent and an inspiration to everyone who came within range of him. So too was my mother. Her energy and zest for life never diminished. She was always taking on new projects and learning new skills. At family gatherings, she was always the first on the dance floor. And in the last years of her life, she was studying ballroom dancing and making dolls' houses and miniatures. For both my mother and my father, there was always a clear, substantial difference between their chronological ages and their real ages. There's no shortage of people who achieve significant things in their later years. Benjamin Franklin invented the bifocal lens when he was 78. That's how old Grandma Moses was when she decided to get serious about painting. Agatha Christie wrote The Mousetrap, the world's longest-running play, when she was 62. Jessica Tandy won the Oscar for Best Actress at age 80. Vladimir Horowitz gave his last series of sold-out piano recitals when he was 84. Compare these accomplishments with the premature resignation of people you know in their 30s or 40s who behave as if their lives have settled into a dull routine and who see little opportunity to change and evolve. If you're 50, exercise your mind and body regularly, eat well and have a general zest for life, 
You're probably younger, in very real physical terms, than your neighbour who's 44, works in a dead-end job, eats chicken wings twice a day, considers thinking too strenuous, and looks at lifting a beer glass as a reasonable daily workout. Dr Henry Lodge, co-author of Younger Next Year, makes the point sharply. It turns out, he says, that 70% of American ageing is not real ageing. It's just decay. It's rot from the stuff that we do. All the lifestyle diseases, the diabetes, the obesity, the heart disease, much of the Alzheimer's, lots of the cancers and almost all of the osteoporosis, those are all decay. Nature doesn't have that in store for any of us, he says. We go out and buy it off the rack. The people at realage.com have pulled together a set of metrics designed to calculate your real age as opposed to your chronological age. It takes into consideration a wide range of factors regarding lifestyle, genetics and medical history. What's fascinating about this is that their work suggests that it's actually possible to make yourself younger by making better choices. One way to improve your real age is to take better care of yourself physically through exercise and nutrition. I know this because I live in California, where everyone seems to have stock in Lycra and dairy products have the same health status as cigarettes. I try my best to live healthily too. I aim to do sit-ups every day and to avoid dessert. But it's not only about working out and eating in. One of the fundamental precepts of the element is that we need to reconnect with ourselves and to see ourselves holistically. One of the greatest obstacles to being in our element is the belief that our minds somehow exist independently of our bodies, like tenants in an apartment, or that our bodies are really just a form of transport for our heads. The evidence of research, and of common sense, is not only that our physical health affects our intellectual and emotional vitality, but that our attitudes can affect our physical well-being. But equally important is the work you do to keep your mind young. Laughter has a huge impact in mitigating ageing. So does intellectual curiosity. Meditation can also provide significant benefits to the physical body. The answer to the question, is it too late for me to find the element, is simple. No, of course not. Even in the cases where the physical degradations that come with age make certain achievements impossible, the element is still within reach. I'll never get that speed skating gold. But if the sport meant that much to me, it doesn't, I could find a way to gain access to that tribe, perhaps using the skills I already have and those I could acquire to make a meaningful contribution to that world. Keeping things plastic. What this really comes down to is our capacity to continue to develop our creativity and intelligence as we enter new stages in our lives. Obviously, it happens in dramatic ways when we're very young. The infant brain is tremendously active and enormously plastic. It's a ferment of potential. It has somewhere near 100 billion neurons, and it can make a nearly infinite variety of possible connections, building what scientists call neural pathways out of what we encounter in the world. Our brains are pre-programmed to some degree by our genetics, but our experiences deeply affect how we evolve as individuals and how our brains develop. Consider, for instance, how we learn language. Learning to speak is one of the most miraculous achievements in a child's life. It happens for most of us within our first few years. No one teaches language to us, certainly not our parents. They couldn't possibly do that because spoken language is too complex, too subtle, 
and too full of variations for anyone to teach it formally to a child. Of course, parents and others guide and correct young children as they learn to speak, and they may encourage and applaud them. But babies don't learn to speak by instruction. They learn by imitation and inference. We're all born with a deep instinctive capacity for language, which is activated almost as soon as we draw breath. Babies instinctively recognise meanings and intentions in the sounds and tones they hear from other humans around them. Babies born into households with dogs as pets will respond to the noises and growls that dogs make. However, they don't confuse these sounds with human language. Most children don't opt for barking as a way of communicating, with the possible exception of the terrible twos and a couple of years in late adolescence. There doesn't seem to be any obvious limit to our capacity for languages. Children born into multilingual households are likely to learn each of these languages. They don't reach a point of saturation and say, please keep my grandmother out of here. I can't handle another dialect. Young children tend to learn all the languages to which they're exposed and to slip effortlessly between them. I recall meeting three school-aged brothers a few years ago. Their mother was French, their father was American and they lived in Costa Rica. They were fluent in French, English and Spanish, as well as an amalgam they created from three that they used exclusively when they were speaking with each other. On the other hand, if you're born into a monolingual household, the odds are that you won't seek out other languages to learn, at least until you need to choose one in middle school. Learning a new language at that point is a much more difficult thing to do, because you've already paved a large number of neural pathways with regard to language. In other words, you've made a huge number of yes-no decisions about what to call a particular item, how to form sentences, and even how to shape your mouth when speaking. Trying to speak a foreign language for the first time in your 30s is even tougher. The neuroscientist Susan Greenfield illustrates the amazing plasticity of the young brain in a cautionary tale of a six-year-old boy in Italy who was blind in one eye. The cause of his blindness was a mystery. As far as the ophthalmologist could tell, his eye was perfectly normal. They eventually discovered that when he was a baby, he'd been treated for a minor infection. The treatment included having the eye bandaged for two weeks. This would have made little difference to the eye of an adult. But in a young baby, the development of the eye-to-brain neural circuits is a delicate and critical process. Because the neurons serving the bandaged eye were not being used during this crucial period of development, they were treated by the brain as though they weren't there at all. Sadly, said Greenfield, the bandaging of the eye was misinterpreted by the brain as a clear indication that the boy would not be using the eye for the rest of his life. The result was that he was permanently blinded in that eye. Young brains are in a constant process of evolution and change and extremely reactive to their environment. During early stages of development, our brains go through a process that cognitive scientists call neural pruning. Essentially, this involves trimming away neural pathways that we determine at an unconscious level to have little long-term value to us. This pruning is, of course, different for every individual, but it's a tremendously necessary part of development. It serves the same function in our brains as pruning does to a tree, it gets rid of the unnecessary branches to allow for continued growth and increased overall strength. It shuts down pathways that we'll never use again in order to make room for the expansion of pathways that we will use regularly. As a result, the enormous natural capacities with which we're all born 
become shaped and moulded, expanded or limited, through a constant process of interaction between internal biological processes and our actual experiences in the world. The best news in all of this is that the physical development of the brain is not a straightforward, one-way, linear process. Our brains don't stop developing when we get our first set of car keys, though the insurance companies would like to suggest as much. Harvard neurobiologist Gerald Fishback has performed extensive research in brain cell counting, and he's determined that we retain the overwhelming majority of our brain cells throughout our lives. The average brain contains more neurons than it could possibly use in a lifetime, even given our increased life expectancies. In addition, research indicates that as long as we keep using our brains in an active way, we continue to build neural pathways as we get older. This gives us not only the ongoing potential for creative thought, but also an additional incentive for continuing to stretch ourselves. There's strong evidence to suggest that the creative functions of our brain stay strong deep into our lives. We can recover and renew many of our latent aptitudes by deliberately exercising them. Just as physical exercise can revitalise our muscles, mental exercise can revitalise our creative capabilities. There's extensive research going on now regarding neurogenesis, the creation of new brain cells in adult humans. It's becoming clear that contrary to what we believed for more than a century, the brain continues to generate new cells, and certain mental techniques, such as meditation, can even accelerate this. We can admire the remarkable work done by people like George O'Keefe, Albert Einstein, Paul Newman and I.M. Pei, late in their lives. But we shouldn't consider this work remarkable because they did it late in life. These people were simply high achievers who kept their brains sharp so they could continue to be high achievers. That they accomplished what they did at advanced ages shouldn't surprise us nearly as much as it often does. I mentioned earlier that it's unlikely that a centenarian will take the lead in Swan Lake. It's not impossible, just unlikely. The reason, of course, is that at least until medical science takes several leaps forward, some of our capacities do deteriorate with age, especially physical athleticism. There's not much point in denying this, though some of us try desperately to do that to the point of embarrassing ourselves in public. However, this isn't true of all of our capacities. Like a good wheel of Parmigiano-Reggiano, some of them actually improve over time. There seem to be seasons of possibility in all of our lives, and they vary according to what we're doing. It's widely accepted that our abilities in mathematics, for example, tend to grow and peak in our 20s and 30s. I don't mean the ability to work out the food bill or to calculate the odds of your team winning the Super Bowl. I'm speaking about the kind of higher math done by world-class mathematicians, the Terence Tows of the world. Most math geniuses have done their most original work by the time the rest of us have signed up for our first mortgages, which is something we probably wouldn't do if we were better at math. The same is true of learning the technical skills of playing a musical instrument. But in other ways, and in other areas, maturity can be a genuine advantage, especially, for example, in the arts. Many writers, poets, painters and composers have produced their greatest work as their insights and sensitivities deepened with age. One can say the same about disciplines as diverse as law, cooking, teaching and landscape design. In fact, in any discipline where experience plays a significant role, age is an asset rather than a liability. It follows, then, that too late arrives at various times, 
depending on where your search for the element takes you. If it's towards internationally competitive gymnastics, it might be too late by the time you're 15. If it's towards developing a new style of fusion cuisine, too late might never come. For most of us, we're not even close to too late. Engaged forever. One of the results of seeing our lives as linear and unidirectional is that it leads to a culture, true of most Western cultures in fact, of segregating people by age. We send the very young to nursery schools and kindergartens as a group. We educate teenagers in batches. We move the elderly into retirement homes. There are some good reasons for all of this. After all, as Gail Sheehy noted decades ago, there are predictable passages in our lives, and it makes some sense to create environments where people can experience those passages in an optimal way. However, there are also good reasons to challenge the routines of what really amounts to age discrimination. An inspiring example is a unique educational program in the Jinx School District of Tulsa, Oklahoma. The state of Oklahoma has a nationally acclaimed early years reading program, providing reading classes for three to five-year-olds throughout the state. The Jinx District offers a unique version of the program. This came about when the owner of another institution in Jinx, one across the street from one of the elementary schools, approached the superintendent of schools. He'd heard about the reading program and wondered if his institution could offer some help. The superintendent responded positively to the idea and after clearing some bureaucratic hurdles, welcomed the other institution's help. The other institution is the Grace Living Centre, a retirement home. Over the next few months, the district established a preschool and kindergarten classroom in the very heart of the Grace Living Centre. Surrounded by clear glass walls, with a gap at the top to allow the sounds of the children to filter out, the classroom sits in the foyer of the main building. The children and their teachers go to school there every day, as though it were any other classroom. Because it's in the foyer, the residents walk past it at least three times a day to get to their meals. As soon as the class opened, many of the residents stopped to look through the glass walls at what was going on. The teachers told them that the children were learning to read. One by one, several residents asked if they could help. The teachers were glad to have the assistance and they quickly set up a program called Book Buddies. The program pairs a member of the retirement home with one of the children. The adults listen to the children read and they read to them. The program has had some remarkable results. One is that the majority of the children at the Grace Living Centre are outperforming other children in the district on the state's standardised reading tests. More than 70% are leaving the program at age 5, reading at third grade level or higher. But the children are learning much more than how to read. As they sit with their book buddies, the kids have rich conversations with the adults about a wide variety of subjects, and especially about the elders' memories of their childhoods growing up in Oklahoma. The children ask them things like how big their iPods were when they were growing up and the adults explain that their lives really weren't like the lives that kids have now. This leads to stories about how they lived and played 70, 80 or even 90 years ago. The children are getting a wonderfully textured social history of their hometowns from people who have seen the town evolve over the decades. Parents are so pleased with this extracurricular benefit that a lottery is now required because the demand for the 60 available desks is so strong. Something else is being going on at the Grace Living Centre though. 
Medication levels there are plummeting. Many of the residents on the programme have stopped or cut back on their drugs. Why is this happening? Because the adult participants in the programme have come back to life. Instead of whiling away their days waiting for the inevitable, they have a reason to get up in the morning and a renewed excitement about what the day might bring. Because they're reconnecting with their creative energies, they're literally living longer. There's something else the children learn. Every now and then, the teachers have to tell them that one of their book buddies won't be coming anymore, that this person has passed. So the children come to appreciate at a tender age that life has its rhythms and cycles, and that even the people they become close to are part of that cycle. In a way, the Grace Living Centre has restored an ancient, traditional relationship between the generations. The very young and the very old have always had an almost mystical connection. They seem to understand each other in a fundamental, often unspoken way. Our practice in the West is often to keep these generations apart. The Book Buddies programme shows, in a simple yet profound way, the enrichment possible when generations come together. It shows, too, that the elderly can revive long-lost energies if the circumstances are right and the inspiration is there. There's time. What everyone, from Susan Jeffers to Julia Child to the Book Buddies teachers, is that remarkable, life-enhancing things can happen when we take the time to step out of our routines, rethink our paths and revisit the passions we left behind, or never pursued at all, for whatever reason. We can take ourselves in fresh directions at nearly any point in our lives. We have the capacity to discover the element at practically any age. As the actor Sophie Loren once said, there is a fountain of youth. It is your mind, your talents, the creativity you bring to your life and the lives of the people you love. When you learn to tap this source, you will truly have defeated age. Chapter 10 for love or money. Gabriel Trope is an accomplished academic scholar. When I met him, he was at Berkeley studying for a PhD in German literature. This work means a great deal to him, but it's not the only thing about which he's passionate. He also has an overwhelming attraction to music. If I were to lose the use of my hands, he said to me, my life would be over. Yet Gabriel has never entertained the thought of becoming a professional musician. In fact, for a long time, he didn't want to be involved in music at all. In his first years of high school, Gabriel would look pityingly at the music students, struggling across the campus with their bulky instrument cases, turning up at school for rehearsals hours before anyone else had to be there. This wasn't a lie for him, especially the part about getting to school extra early. He vowed secretly to avoid music. However, one day in the music class that was part of the school's standard curriculum, he was tinkling idly on the piano and realised that he found it easy to pick out tunes. With a sinking feeling, he realised too that he actually enjoyed doing it. He tried to disguise his obvious pleasure from the music teacher who'd wandered over to listen. He mustn't have done this particularly well because the teacher told Gabriel that he had a good ear and suggested that he go into the music storeroom to see if any of the instruments there appealed to him. A friend of Gabriel's played the cello, and for this reason and no other, Gabriel decided to try out one of those in the storeroom. He found that he loved the shape and size of the instrument, and the deep, sonorous noise it made when he plucked the strings. One cello in particular, he said, had a wonderful smell of middle school varnish. 
he decided to break his vow and to give the cello a chance. When he began practising, he took it very casually. But he quickly found that he loved playing this instrument, and that he was spending more and more time doing so. From there, Gabriel practised so often and with such intensity that within a couple of months he was playing reasonably well. Within a year, he was the principal cellist in the school orchestra. This meant, of course, that he arrived at school early in the morning, dragging his bulky instrument case across the campus to the pitying looks of the non-musicians he'd left behind. Gabriel also loves literature, the German language and academic work. At some point he had to make a hard decision between music and academics as his primary focus in life. After a long internal struggle, he chose German literature, because he felt that doing so would allow him to continue to spend time as a cellist, while if he dedicated himself to a profession in music, the time required to do that would have made it nearly impossible for him to explore German poetry in depth. I chose literature, he said, because it seemed to me compatible with an intensity of music playing. And if I were to be a professional musician, my attachment to literature would have been disproportionately sidetracked. So this arrangement was really the one I could find where I could remain a dedicated cellist and sustain a high degree of involvement with literary language. Still, he plays for hours every day and continues to perform. He recently played a cello concerto with the University of California Berkeley Symphony Orchestra. He doesn't know how he would survive without regular immersion in the practice and enjoyment of music. To call this a hobby, he says, would be ridiculous. Music is elemental in his life, and in music, he's found his element. In the truest meaning of the word, Gabriel is an amateur musician, and he wouldn't have it any other way. For the love of it. At the most basic levels, professionals in any field are simply those people who earn their living in that field, while amateurs are people who don't. But the terms amateur and professional often imply something else, something about quality and expertise. People often think of amateurs as second-rate, as those who perform well below professional levels. Amateurs are the ones who gesticulate too wildly in the local theatre production, who score over a hundred on the golf course, or who write cute stories about pets in the town's free newspaper. When we call something amateurish, we use the word as a pejorative. We're suggesting that the thing upon which we're commenting is nowhere near professional, that the effort is something of an embarrassment. Sometimes it's perfectly reasonable to draw sharp distinctions between professionals and amateurs. There can, after all, be enormous differences of accomplishment between them. If I had to have a vasectomy, I'd greatly prefer to put myself in the hands of someone who did this sort of thing for a living, rather than someone who occasionally dabbled in it. But often the differences between professionals and amateurs have less to do with quality than with choice. Many people, like Gabriel, do perform at professional levels in the fields they love. They simply choose not to make their living that way. They aren't professionals in this field because they don't make their money that way. They are, by definition, amateurs. But nothing about their skill is amateurish. The word amateur derives from the Latin word amata, which means lover, devoted friend, or someone who is in avid pursuit of an objective. In the original sense, an amateur is someone who does something for the love of it. Amateurs do what they do because they have a passion for it, not because it pays the bills. True amateurs, in other words, are people who found the element in something other than their jobs.
In the Pro-Am Revolution, a report for the British think tank Demos, Charles Ledbetter and Paul Miller underline the rise of a type of amateur that works at increasingly higher standards and generates breakthroughs sometimes greater than those made by professionals, hence the term Pro-Am. In many cases, new technology is providing a wider group with apparatus once unaffordable to the amateur. CCD chips for telescopes, Pro Tools for musicians, sophisticated video editing software for home computers and so on. Ledbetter and Miller point to the emergence of hip-hop, a musical genre that started with the distribution of handmade tapes. They note that the Linux computer operating system is a collaborative work created by a large community of programmers in their spare time. The Jubilee 2000 debt campaign, which has resulted in the relief of tens of billions of dollars in debt from third world countries, started with the petitions of people with no professional lobbying experience. And an amateur astronomer using a 10-inch telescope is credited with the discovery of a supernova. A pro-am pursues an activity as an amateur mainly for the love of it, but sets a professional standard, Ledbetter and Miller say. Pro-ams are unlikely to earn more than a small portion of their income from their pastime, but they pursue it with the dedication and commitment associated with a professional. For pro-ams, leisure is not passive consumerism, but active and participatory. It involves the deployment of publicly accredited knowledge and skills, often built up over a long career, which has involved sacrifices and frustrations. Ledbetter and Miller call pro-ams a new social hybrid, noting that they pursue their passions outside of the workplace, but with an energy and dedication rarely given to acts of leisure. Pro-ams find this level of intensity restorative, often helping to compensate for less than inspiring jobs. Some people do truly remarkable work as amateurs. Arthur C. Clarke was a best-selling science fiction writer, author of, among other novels, 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Rendezvous with Rama. He'd already begun his writing career when he became an officer in the British Royal Air Force. While there, he observed scientists in the Air Force Radar Division and became fascinated with their work. In 1945, he published an article in Wireless World magazine entitled Extraterrestrial Relays. Can rocket stations give worldwide radio coverage? In it, he posited the use of satellites in geostationary orbit to broadcast television signals around the globe. Most scientists dismiss this proposition as yet another work of science fiction. However, Clark had a very keen interest in the subject, and he'd studied it carefully. His proposal was solid technically, and as we now all know, utterly prescient. The specific geostationary orbit that Clark proposed is now known as the Clark Orbit, and hundreds of satellites use it. And while Clark made his living in the upper stratospheres of the New York Times bestseller list, it's the work he did as an amateur, specifically a letter to the editors of Wireless World that preceded his article, that sits in the National Air and Space Museum. Susan Hendrickson hasn't had a particular profession at all. She dropped out of high school, became a skilled scuba diver, taught herself to identify rare marine specimens, became an expert at finding amber insect fossils, and has lived a multifaceted life as an explorer and adventurer. In 1990, Hendrickson joined an archaeological expedition in South Dakota, led by the Black Hills Institute of Geological Research. The work started extremely slowly. The group explored six outcrops and made no significant discoveries. Then, one day, while the rest of her team was in town, Hendrickson decided to explore the only other mapped outcrop. There, 
she came upon a few small bones. These bones would lead to the uncovering of the largest and most complete fossil skeleton of a Tyrannosaurus rex ever discovered, and one of the few female T. rexes ever found. The skeleton is now on display at the Field Museum in Chicago. Her name? Tyrannosaurus Sue, after the amateur archaeologist who unearthed her. In his book The Amateurs, David Halberstam wrote about four athletes in their pursuit of Olympic gold in 1984. Unlike the track champions or basketball players who could leverage Olympic success into huge professional contracts, the Olympic Committee didn't allow NBA stars to participate back then, or endorsement deals, the subjects Halberstam followed, scholars, had no chance of cashing in on their victories. They were doing it purely for the love of the sport and the sense of accomplishment that would come from being the best. The book focuses most closely on Christopher Tiff Wood. Halberstam calls Wood the personification of the amateur. He'd put aside career, marriage, pleasure in his single-minded pursuit of excellence in a sport that few of his fellow countrymen cared about and that was therefore absolutely without commercial rewards. At 31, Wood was old for the sport, at least at the Olympic level. But he was on a mission. He'd been an alternate at the 1976 Olympics and never got to compete. He was the captain of the 1980 team that was supposed to go to Moscow. But as a protest over the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, America chose not to attend those games. The 1984 Olympics would be Wood's last chance for a gold medal. Within the small but devoted sculling community, he'd become something of a favourite son. Tiff Wood, as it turns out, didn't come away with the gold. That fact, though, is only a sidebar to the story. What comes across in Halberstam's depiction of Wood and the other scholars is the passion and satisfaction associated with a purely amateur pursuit. Tiff Wood discovered the element through his non-professional efforts. His job was just a job. Rowing was his life. To be in your element, it isn't necessary to drop everything else and do it all day, every day. For some people at some stages in their lives, leaving their current jobs or roles to pursue their passions simply isn't a practical proposition. Other people choose not to do that for a whole range of reasons. Many people earn their living doing one thing, and they then create time and space in their lives to do the thing they love. Some people do this because it makes greater sense emotionally. Others do it because they feel they have no alternative but to pursue their passions on the side. A couple of years ago, I was leasing a new car from a dealership in Santa Monica. As it turned out, this wasn't easy. There was a time when the only decision you had to make when buying a car was whether to have it or not. Now you have to take a full-scale multiple-choice test to navigate your way between the hundreds of finishes, trims, accessories and performance features that stand between you and the version you actually want. I'm not good at this kind of excessive decision-making. I need help deciding what to wear in the morning, where there's much less choice and the stakes are far lower. By the time I'd made up my mind about the car, my salesman, Bill, and I had bonded and were planning our annual reunion. While we were waiting for the final paperwork, another lengthy process, I asked him what he did when he wasn't working. Without missing a beat, he said he was a photographer. I asked him what he photographed, assuming he meant family weddings and pets. He said he was a sports photographer. I asked him what sports he covered. Just surfing, he said. I was intrigued and asked him why. He said that he'd been a surfer when he was younger 
and simply loved the beauty and dynamics of the sport. He went to the beach at Malibu after work, weekends, holidays, whenever he could, just to take pictures. He'd been doing this for years, and he'd accumulated thousands of dollars' worth of cameras, tripods and specialised lenses. Over longer holidays, he travelled to Hawaii and Australia to catch the big surf on camera. I asked him if any of his pictures had been published. He said they had, and pulled open the drawer of his desk. It was full of high-production, glossy surfing magazines. He had pictures in every one of them. His work was very, very good. I asked him if he'd ever thought of doing this type of work for a living. I'd love to, he said, but there isn't enough money in it. Nonetheless, surfing photography was his passion, and one of the things that made his life worthwhile. As I leafed through these amazing professional images, I asked him what his boss at the dealership thought of them. He doesn't know anything about them, Bill told me. It's not really relevant to how I do my job, is it? I'm not sure he was right about that. I actually think that it might have had a great deal to do with how Bill did his job, as is likely the case with all people who discover the element in a pursuit other than their jobs. My guess is that the satisfaction and excitement Bill found photographing surfers made it so much easier for him to be effective at what he thought of as the relative drudgery of helping customers choose from dozens of paint samples, finish options and decisions about running boards. The creative outlet he found in his photography made him that much more patient and helpful in his day job. The need for an outlet of this sort manifests itself in many forms. One that I find fascinating is the emergence of the corporate rock band. Unlike the company's softball team, which tends to fill its roster with young people from the mailroom, these bands tend to include a lineup of senior executives, unless someone in the mailroom is a great bass player, who once dreamed of being rock stars before settling into other careers. The passion with which many of these amateur musicians play shows that such an avocation offers a level of fulfilment that they can't find in their work, regardless of how accomplished they are at their jobs. For four years now, there's been a rock festival of sorts put together in New York to benefit the charity A Leg to Stand On. What distinguishes this rock benefit show from all others is that every member of every band, with the exception of a couple of ringers, is in the hedge fund business. By day, most of the performers manage money, states one of the press releases for Hedge Fund Rocktoberfest, but when they turn off their trading screens, they turn on the music. By 11pm, everyone is either thinking about their 4am train ride the next morning or the fact that the Tokyo markets are now open, noted Tim Seymour, one of the performers. But while the show is on, it's pure revelry, with managers covering classic hits or even donning skimpy outfits to serve as backup singers. The contrast between the day job and this is dramatic and by all indications liberating for everyone who participates. Transformation Finding the element is essential to a balanced and fulfilled life. It can also help us to understand who we really are. These days, we tend to identify ourselves by our jobs. The first question at parties and social gatherings is often, what do you do? We dutifully answer with a top-line description of our professions. I'm a teacher, I'm a designer, I'm a driver. If you don't have a paid job, you might feel somewhat awkward about this and find the need to give an explanation. For so many of us, our jobs define us, even to ourselves, and even if the work we do doesn't express who we really feel we are. This can be especially frustrating if your job is unfulfilling. If we're not in our element at work, it becomes even more important to discover that element somewhere else.
To begin with, it can enrich everything else you do. Doing the thing you love and that you do well for even a couple of hours a week can make everything else more palatable. But in some circumstances, it can lead to transformations you might not have imagined possible. Khaled Hosseini immigrated to America in 1980, got a medical degree in the 1990s, and set off on a career practicing internal medicine in the Bay Area. In his heart, though, he knew he wanted to be a writer and that he wanted to tell the story of life in Afghanistan prior to the Soviet invasion. While continuing his medical practice, he began to work on a novel about two boys growing up in Kabul. That novel became The Kite Runner, a book that sold more than four million copies and generated a recent film. Hosseini's pursuit of his most intense interests, even while he was working hard at another profession, transformed him in profound ways. The success of The Kite Runner has allowed him to go on an extended sabbatical from medicine and to concentrate on writing full-time. He published his second novel, the best-selling A Thousand Splendid Sons, in 2007. I enjoyed practicing medicine, he said in a recent interview, and was always honoured that patients put their trust in me to take care of them and their loved ones. But writing had always been my passion since childhood. I feel ridiculously fortunate and privileged that writing is, at least for the time being, my livelihood. It's a dream realised. Like Khaled Hosseini, Miles Waters' first career was in the medical profession. He began practising as a dentist in England in 1974. And, like Hosseini, Waters had a burning passion for an entirely different field. In Waters' case, it was popular music. He'd played in bands at school and started writing songs along the way. In 1977, he scaled back his dental practice to spend more time at songwriting. It took him several years to make inroads, but he eventually wrote several hit songs and began to earn a living in the music field. He quit dentistry for a period and worked full-time as a writer and producer, contributing to an album by Jim Capaldi from the legendary rock band Traffic that featured work from Eric Clapton, Steve Winwood and George Harrison. He's travelled in the same circles as Paul McCartney and Pink Floyd's David Gilmour. These days, he shuttles between music and dentistry, maintaining a practice while still composing music and producing. John Wood made a fortune as a marketing executive for Microsoft. During a trip to the Himalayas, though, he came upon a school in an impoverished village. The school taught 450 students, but had only 20 books, and not one of these was a children's book. When Wood asked the school's headmaster how the school got by with such a paucity of books, the headmaster enlisted his aid. Wood began collecting books and raising money for the school and others, doing the work on nights and weekends while dealing with a hugely demanding day job. Finally, he walked away from Microsoft for his true calling, Room to Read, a non-profit organisation with the goal of extending literacy in poor countries. Several of his Microsoft colleagues thought he'd lost his mind. It was incomprehensible to many of them, he said in an interview. When they found out I was leaving to do things like delivering books on the backs of donkeys, they thought I was crazy. Room to Read has been transformational, not only for Wood, but for thousands and thousands of others. The non-profit organisation has created more than 5,000 school libraries in six countries, with plans to extend that reach to 10,000 libraries and 15 countries by 2010. Beyond Leisure 
there's an important difference between leisure and recreation. In a general sense, both words suggest processes of physical or mental regeneration, but they have different connotations. Leisure is generally thought of as the opposite of work. It suggests something effortless and passive. We tend to think of work as something that takes our energy. Leisure is what we do to build it up again. Leisure offers a respite, a passive break from the challenges of the day, a chance to rest and recharge. Recreation carries a more active tone, literally of recreating ourselves. It suggests activities that require physical or mental effort, but which enhance our energies rather than depleting them. I associate the element much more with recreation than with leisure. Dr. Suzanne Peterson is a management professor at the W.P. Carey School of Business and Centre for Responsible Leadership at Arizona State University and a consultant for an executive coaching firm. She's also a championship dancer, twice winning the Holiday Dance Classic in Las Vegas and grabbing the 2007 Hotlanta US Open Pro-Am Latin Championship, among others. Suzanne took some dance classes when she was a teenager, but she never seriously considered dance as a career. Suzanne knew from the time she was in high school that she wanted to be an executive. I didn't grow up knowing exactly what I wanted to be, she said, but I knew that I wanted to wear business suits, speak to large groups of people, and have them listen to me, and have a title. I always saw myself as being able to wear great business suits for some reason. And I liked the idea that I could visualise myself in front of groups of people and have something important to say. But dancing was not a passion when I was young. It was something you did because what else do girls do as a hobby if they don't want to play soccer and baseball? Her rediscovery of dance and the intense excitement that accompanied it this time around came nearly accidentally. I was just looking for a hobby, she said, and my achievement and motivation got the best of me. I was about 26, and I was in graduate school. At this time, salsa and swing dancing were getting popular, so I'd just go into the social dance studio, and I would watch. I'd mimic what the teachers were doing. Slowly but surely, I started taking group lessons, and then some private lessons. The next thing I know, it's this huge part of my life. So it really was a progression based on my belief that I had the requisite talent for it, and sort of the basic ability level. But probably my academic side allowed me to study it and focus on it just like any other subject. And literally, I would study it like any other academic science. Huge visualisation. I'd sit on planes and I would visualise myself going through the dances. So any time I couldn't physically practice, I would mentally practice. I could feel the music. I could feel the emotions. I could see the facial expressions. And I'd come the next day to the dance studio after being gone, and I'd be better. And my dance partner would say, How did you get better overnight? Weren't you travelling to Philadelphia? And I'd say, Oh, I practised on the plane. And I literally would practise up to two hours in my head, totally uninterrupted. I went into dancing the same way I go into my career, she said. You give 110%, and you go in strong and powerful. And I realise that when you do that in dancing, it's too much. You lose the femininity and, all of a sudden, you're in everybody's face too much. The business side is power and confidence in all these things. And the dancing is vulnerability and sensuality, everything soft. You go from one to the other 
and I enjoy them equally. Suzanne, in fact, seems to have found her element in multiple ways. She loves her profession, and she loves what she does for recreation. If I'm really teaching something about leadership that I'm passionate about, she says, I get the same exact feeling, except that it's just a different emotion. I mean, I feel confident and powerful and very connected to the audience, and I want to make a difference. And then, in the dancing, I feel more vulnerable, a little less confidence. But they're both escapes in different ways, and I get completely engulfed in them and get very moved by them emotionally. Ultimately, though, her life has added meaning because she's chosen a recreational pursuit that is fulfilling rather than simply entertaining. It's taught me more about communication, she said, than studying communication ever could. You realize the effect that you have on another person. If you're in a bad mood, that person knows it in a second, just touching your hand. And so in my head, I could feel the perfect connection that's in a partnership, the perfect communication. I would feel extremely happy. It's a flow experience. I mean, it's a complete release. I don't think about anything. I don't think about anything good in my life. I don't think about anything bad in my life. Literally, I wouldn't get distracted if gunshots went off. It's really amazing. Suzanne's sister, Andrea Hanna, is an executive assistant working in Los Angeles. Like Suzanne, she's found a pursuit beyond her job that adds dimension to her life. I didn't like writing until my senior year of high school, she told me. My English teacher told us to write a compelling college entrance essay about anything of our choice. Like most assignments, I dreaded the idea of sitting down and writing a five-paragraph essay that was just going to end up covered in red pen. Nonetheless, I finally sat down and wrote about how unprepared I felt for college, but how excited I was to start a new chapter in my life. This was the first essay I'd ever written for school that had humour in it. It was also the first essay where I was able to write about something I was an expert on, me. To my surprise, my teacher loved it and read it in front of the class. She also entered it into a writing contest. I won first place and was asked to read my paper in front of a large group of professional women writers. I even got my picture in the paper. It was exciting for me and gave me a boost of confidence as I entered college. I've always been told, Andrea went on, that I have a very strong writer's voice. People always tell me, I can hear you while I read this. In college, I started sending friends the occasional comedic email, recapping our weekends. I would turn each one of my friends into a character and embellish the story just enough to get the laugh I wanted. My emails started getting circulated amongst groups of friends, and pretty soon I'd get a reply from someone I wouldn't know telling me how great my writing was. It felt so great to be so good at something that came so naturally to me. The summer between my sophomore and junior year, I got a job as a receptionist at a radio station. Within a month, I'd started writing funny advertising spots for the station. The station manager loved my ideas and put them on the air. All my friends would tune in to hear my funny commercials, many of which I starred in myself. It felt really good to hear my work produced and get the response I'd sought out to get. As my work got recognised, she said, I started realising I had a talent for something that could possibly be a career. I entered the entertainment industry right after college. I had several jobs working for television writers and film producers learning the ropes. 
After years of coffee runs and executive car washes, I realised that many of these dream jobs were some of the least creative jobs out there. At one point, said Andrea, I dreamt of being a writer for Saturday Night Live, but learned weekly deadlines and high-stress environments take any enjoyment out of it for me. I began to think, why does a paycheck validate my talent? When it comes down to it, I just love to make people laugh. And if one of my sketches, short stories or funny emails makes someone crack up, well, that's really enough for me. I became a much happier person when I came to that realisation. When I think about it, I think the main reason I enjoy writing comedy is because I feel witty and smart when I'm doing it. For so many years, I felt stupid because I never excelled at school. My writing gives me confidence and makes me feel like a more complete version of myself. The objective of this form of recreation is to bring a proper balance into our lives. A balance between making a living and making a life. Whether or not we can spend most of our time in our element, it's essential for our well-being that we connect with our true passions in some way and at some point. More and more people are doing this through formal and informal networks, clubs and festivals to share and celebrate common creative interests. These include choirs, theatre festivals, science clubs and music camps. Personal happiness comes as much from the emotional and spiritual fulfilment that this can bring as from the material needs we meet from the work we may have to do. The scientific study of happiness is a relatively new field. It got off to something of a false start with Abraham Maslow six decades ago when he suggested that we spend more time understanding the psychology of our positive traits rather than focusing exclusively on what makes us mentally ill. Unfortunately, most of his contemporaries found little inspiration in his words. The concept gained a great deal of traction, though, when Martin Seligman became president of the American Psychological Association and, coining the term positive psychology, announced that the goal of his year-long term in office was to provoke further exploration into what made human beings flourish. Since then, scientists have conducted dozens of studies on happiness. Happy individuals seem to have a whole lot more fun than the rest of us ever do, said Dr Michael Fordyce in his book Human Happiness. They have many more activities they enjoy doing for fun, and they spend much more of their time on a given day or week doing fun, exciting and enjoyable activities. Discovering the element doesn't promise to make you richer. Quite the opposite is possible, actually, as exploring your passions might lead you to leave behind that career as an investment banker to follow your dream of opening a pizzeria. Nor does it promise to make you more famous, more popular, or even a bigger hit with your family. For everyone, being in their element, even for part of the time, can bring a new richness and balance to their lives. The element is about a more dynamic, organic conception of human existence, in which the different parts of our lives are not seen as hermetically sealed off from one another, but as interacting and influencing each other. Being in our element at any time in our lives can transform our view of ourselves. Whether we do it full-time or part-time, it can affect our whole lives and the lives of those around us. The Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn saw this clearly. If you want to change the world, he said, who do you begin with, yourself or others? I believe if we begin with ourselves, he said, and do the things that we need to do, 
and become the best person we can be, we have a much better chance of changing the world for the better. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD.